Let's ask God to help us now. True and living God, in your great mercy, uh, you have given us uh, your word. Uh, You have sent the gospel uh, of your son uh, to the ends of the earth. And we have been able to hear about him. Our Father, we pray in your mercy, uh, we would know tonight the gospel's power uh, to give life and to change us so that we can live at peace with you. Grant me to speak your word truthfully and clearly in my weakness and in your mercy. Open our eyes to see Jesus' glory in his gospel. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, It's always interesting uh, listening to sportsmen and women when they retire. As I was listening to Sean Burgoyne and Alistair Clarkson on Thursday night. Uh, Both have had long and distinguished careers in a demanding profession and both talked of having a rest. But you think of the effort involved to perform at that level, 17 years coaching Hawthorne for Clarkson and 407 games, I think that's the number, for Burgoyne and you wonder what kept them in the game for so long. Now, it may be a mixture of things, you know, the adulation of the crowds, the elation of success, the security of the money, but often sports people will talk of passion, of taking a break sometimes to recover their passion or stopping because they realised they'd lost their passion. At the highest level and fundamentally, what keeps people going week after week with the bruises and the discipline, the ups and downs, is the love of the game itself. What will keep Timothy going in the gospel preaching, the gospel passing on game? What will keep Timothy persevering with the task entrusted to him? The task of holding fast to the the model of Paul's teaching and guarding the good gospel deposit, of protecting the gospel and passing it on faithfully. Because, let's face it, while like Paul we may use sporting or athletic analogies, the call to gospel ministry is a call to something that is tougher and longer than a sportsman's career, even if it runs as long as Sean Burgoyne's. And as we heard in verses 1 to 7, the call to the gospel is a call to suffering, lifelong suffering. The suffering of the single-minded soldier who wants to please the Lord who's enlisted him in his service. The suffering of the self-denial of the disciplined and dedicated athlete. The suffering of the weariness and the aches of the hard-working farmer. What will keep Timothy going in this ministry year after year? What will keep you sharing the gospel, using your time to teach it to others, year after year. Now, as believers, our gifts and circumstances are different from Timothy's, even though some of us, and we pray for this, may be called to a life of gospel preaching and teaching. But we're in a different position to Timothy, yet every believer shares in the command our Lord gave at the end of Matthew's gospel to make disciples, the command given to the disciples to be passed on to all who through their ministry become disciples. 
What will keep you at that? Making disciples, unashamed, calling people to follow Jesus, teaching them to do all that Jesus has commanded, sharing with them the message that brings life and immortality. While Paul has himself persevered in this task to the end, he's run the race, he's fought the fight. And Paul knows that what will sustain Timothy, what will sustain anyone, what will sustain us in giving ourselves to the work of the gospel, to making it known faithfully, is the gospel itself. (coughs) It's love of the gospel itself, conviction of the gospel's truth, that will keep us in the game, keep us unashamed to share the gospel with all, always. And so having called Timothy to suffer for the gospel, Paul now turns to the gospel itself in verses 8 to 13 to encourage Timothy and all of us to persevere in making the gospel known, in making disciples. In these verses, he's going to tell us remind us of the gospel's content, the gospel's power and the gospel's promise. And if we know the truth for ourselves of what Paul says, then through times of weakness, times when we seem to be just limping along in our Christian walk, times of frustration, times of hardship, as well as times of blessing, we won't give up. We will persevere unashamed thankfully and confidently in making the gospel known. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead and descended from David according to my gospel. Remember Jesus Christ. And it's actually continuous. Keep on remembering, continually remember Jesus Christ. So this is not school union type remembering. Uh, If you're old enough, you've been to a few school reunions, you know the kind of conversations that happen there, don't you? Oh, what happened to Bill? Bill? Yes, Bill, the bloke who glued your desk shut. That was when we had desks that opened. Oh, Bill, now I remember. No, Paul's not talking about that kind of remembering. He's talking about identity-shaping and present-motivating remembering like Anzac Day remembering. But he's calling on us to do it every day. This is keep at the front of your mind always, never forgetting for a moment remembering. Remember continually Jesus Christ. Now you might think it's strange to call a Christian to remember Jesus because let's face it, we've got his name in our name. But the reality is we're good at forgetting Good at becoming preoccupied with the affairs of our business or the concerns of our families or good at being overwhelmed with events, with joys and sorrows and forgetting. Now our Lord knew this, didn't he? He gave us the Lord's Supper so that we would remember him. For doing what Paul says here, remembering Christ, always being conscious of the Lord Jesus is the key, not just to ministry, but to the whole Christian life, to knowing who we are, where we come from, where we're heading, how we should live each day as believers. We're so frail. And remembering Jesus is so important that it's good to consciously build into our daily lives ways of remembering, to get good habits of remembering Jesus. So ask yourself, 
What holds before you the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is holds that before you each day, each week, each year, each day. Is it something as simple as saying grace at every meal or the discipline of daily prayer and Bible reading? Each week, meeting with others in growth group or church, even if online, every year. Do I celebrate the saving events remembered in our calendar, Christmas, Easter, Pentecost? Ask yourself, does my life show that I am determined to remember Jesus Christ? Well, Paul in verse 8 highlights two elements of the gospel message that will be particularly helpful for Timothy and for us to remember. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Now, Christians can kind of get used to that kind of talk, Jesus risen from the dead. But think, no one else has done that. Walk around a big cemetery when you get the chance and then multiply those graves across the world and through history and see the millions and millions who once lived like you and now lie here, bones in their graves or tombs. And then if you can bear it, think of the sundering of love, of the tears that have flown, of the tsunami of grief which is human history because death takes us all. It's the veil that covers all nations. And then say, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. In our Lord there is a power of life that death cannot touch Death can't hold him in the grave. Think of that power, that life welling up, irrepressible forever. Think. The Jesus we remember lives, lives to hear us, not dead and distant, but living and near to help us, to help all who call on him. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended. David. Now you might think that last phrase is just a throwback to Paul's Jewish past or a nod to any Jewish readers, but it was important to Paul. He included it in the summary of the gospel with which he introduces his great letter to the Romans. He speaks of the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. That mattered to Paul and it should be important to us because it tells us why Jesus' resurrection matters. You see, Jesus' resurrection isn't just some kind of random, isolated event good for Jesus alone. When Paul says the gospel proclaims Jesus is descended from David, he's saying that Jesus is the one in whom the plan and the promise of God revealed over centuries. The plan and promise of God to bring his people to live securely with him in his presence forever, to reverse all the effect of our sin, is fulfilled. The promises to Abraham, the promises to Israel in the Old Covenant are focused by the prophets in Scripture in the promise of God to David that one of his descendants will rule on David's throne forever. You heard of that promise in Psalm 2 
when God says to David's descendants, you are my son, today I've become your father, ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You could hear that promise in Isaiah 9 every Christmas. To us a child is born, name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace where there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And as we go on in the prophets, that promise is enriched. Saying Isaiah, it's enriched by being joined to the prophecies of the servant of the Lord, of whom the Lord says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. We hear that promise and the expectation it created in the words of Zechariah at the beginning of Luke's gospel, where he rejoices that in the birth of his son John, that time of fulfilment has started and God has raised up for his people a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, who will bring that time when they'll be saved from their enemies and from the hand of all who hate them. These promises about the forever reign of David's descendant involve all nations, all the world, us. involves all creation as they look to the establishment of the new heaven and the earth. When you're remembering Jesus Christ risen from the dead and descended from David according to my gospel, you are remembering that the Lord Jesus is the living saving king with all authority and authority over all. The king who exercises the judgment of God who can forgive or condemn. The king with the power of life, new life, life that death cannot destroy. The king who can welcome his people into the new heaven and earth forever and shut its doors to all evil, sin and death. The king in whom God's plans for all creation and all time are realised. And where do we learn this about Jesus? Where do we meet this risen, reigning king? This Jesus who can open up the new heaven and earth to us. Remember Jesus, according to my gospel, writes Paul, we learn the truth about Jesus in Paul's gospel. Now the gospel's not Paul's because he's made it up. It's Paul's because it's been entrusted to him because the Lord made him, as we read in verse 11 of chapter 1, a herald, an apostle and a teacher. Because the Lord wants his gospel known, he's called Paul to be that herald. The Lord wants it known to the world, known to those dying without the hope of life. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David. That's the content of the gospel now entrusted to Timothy. The gospel we are to be unashamed of. And give yourself a moment to remember just how good that gospel is. Here is the news that the Lord Jesus, who was humble and meek, who welcomed children, who turned away no one in need, who made the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, who brought wholeness to others in himself, who preached good news to the poor. Here's the news. 
that he is the ruler of God's kingdom forever. He's the one entrusted with judgment forever. Not the violent and the greedy, not the proud and the selfish. They don't get the last word. Jesus does. The gospel's so good because here is a promise of life from the one who has conquered death, who can make that promise with certainty. And the gospel is so good because it is true. The gospel is news, a declaration of what God has done in history. Jesus risen from the dead is not an idea or philosophy. It's the report of a witnessed event. Those who knew him, those who saw him die, now testifying that they'd seen, spoken with, touched and eaten with Jesus, alive from the dead. Jesus had convinced them by his presence that having died and been buried, he was now alive. It's news. Now, if you've got questions about that, get in touch. Or better, learn about Jesus' resurrection as part of Jesus' biggest story, the gospel story, by participating in Christianity Explored with Chris. Get in touch to do that. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David, is great good news. It is a gospel worth suffering for. And Paul, who calls us to remember, is as he writes, enduring suffering for this gospel. My gospel, for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. With a line, Paul brings us face to face with his circumstances, bound, and he may very well be changed chained, manacled, as well as being imprisoned. He has certainly lost his freedom. He has no power at all. Now, we have felt for ourselves in a small way, haven't we, the powerlessness of not being able to make plans, the powerlessness of not being able to go where we want, when we want, to talk to who we want, when we want. But it's so much worse for Paul. He is unable to do anything of his own free will. Entirely in the hands of others, powerless. And he's lost his reputation, branded a criminal. Now the only other place the word translated criminal is used is actually in Luke's Gospel to describe those crucified with Jesus, violent, lawless men. Paul is reckoned a serious criminal, a threat to the state. There he is in jail, marginalised, slandered, Powerless suffering. Not someone who's going to impress as the ambassador of a great king. Now Paul's not surprised by his circumstances. He doesn't see those as a contradiction to the truth of the gospel. That's not the issue here. I mean Jesus himself had warned that his messengers would face trial and imprisonment, hostility and suffering. And so what's happening to Paul actually just confirms the truth of what Jesus says. But you might think, Paul's situation would damage the reputation of the gospel, be an impediment to others believing it, an obstacle to the spread of the gospel, to people taking his message seriously. (laughs) What? A king with all authority whose servants are beaten up and imprisoned pull the other leg? You might think that. And Paul could think in those circumstances with 
you know, the association of the gospel with his shame and humiliation, that this kind of press, this level of hostility would mean he would never succeed. His message wouldn't get a hearing. Why should he bother? Why not just give up? But not Paul. He might be bound, but he says the word of God is not bound. The word of God. That is what the gospel is. Not, as Paul writes to us in 1 Thessalonians 2, the word of man, a human message. No, the gospel is the word of the living God. But what does he mean when he says the word of God is not bound? And why is this a reason to keep on enduring making the gospel known? Well, Paul's not talking here about the fact that even if he's in prison, other people will preach the gospel. That's true, but that's not the point here. What he's doing here is speaking of the power of the gospel itself. He's contrasting the gospel with himself and his circumstances. He's bound, weak, his situation unattractive, unpersuasive in his chains. But his powerlessness, his weakness does not make the gospel powerless or unattractive. You see, the gospel doesn't take its power or its effectiveness from its messengers. It's actually the other way round. The gospel is the word of the living God, the God whose word brought all things into being, the word of the God who has promised that his word will not return to him empty but accomplish all that he purposes, succeed in the thing for which he sends it. You could as much make the living God weak and powerless as make his word powerless. And that's not within the capability of any human. The gospel, God's word, continues powerful in Paul's weakness and that's why Paul perseveres with preaching the gospel even in weakness and hardship, even as he suffers in chains. The word of God's not bound. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Because the gospel is the powerful word of God, Paul keeps on faithful to his commission, whatever his circumstances, even as we'll see in 2 Timothy 4, preaching it at his trial. You see, Paul knows the gospel entrusted to him is the means God will use to save his people, his elect. Paul knows God has his people, not just amongst the Jews, but also amongst the nations, the Gentiles, those called, those elected, chosen by God's grace for salvation. And Paul knows God brings them to salvation through the preaching of the gospel. You see, a belief in God's electing grace is not the enemy of evangelism. It's the motive for persevering evangelism, for continuing to speak the gospel, even when it's unpopular and opposed and even when you are weak and powerless. Whatever the circumstances, because the gospel is the means God uses to save his people, that gospel preaching will be fruitful. It's by the gospel word and only by the gospel word that God's people will be saved. Faith, writes Paul in Romans 10, comes from what is heard. 
and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Faith comes through hearing and so the gospel word must be made known. It's by his gospel that the Lord Jesus will call his other sheep. That is how they hear his voice and come to him. Whatever our circumstances, whether we're enjoying health or sickness, success or failure in the world's eyes, honour or dishonour, because the word of God is not bound, we can make the gospel known with confidence it will achieve God's purpose and save his people. And we should make it known. It's love to make it known, for it brings those who believe it to obtain the salvation that is in Christ, says Paul, with eternal glory. With eternal glory. That phrase is a reminder again of how great and good is the salvation the gospel brings, of how the preacher of the gospel in his poverty brings to believers immeasurable wealth. Now, we probably don't think much about eternal glory, but the New Testament often speaks of the glory that will be believers. Oh, we rejoice, writes Paul, being justified by faith in the hope of the glory of God. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, the glory that was lost through sin, the glory of being able to live in the presence of God, to know him, to see his face, unimaginable as it is, will be ours again through the gospel. We will be restored to the presence of God. Believers will share in the resurrection life of our Lord Jesus. His, that glorious eternal life in bodies fitted for the new heaven and earth. The Lord Jesus will come and he will transform, says Paul, our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Oh, this body is sown in dishonour, but we're assured it will be raised in glory, fit to live in the presence of the living God. This salvation in Christ the gospel brings is glorious. And Paul assures us, that this extraordinary gospel that brings such riches does not become powerless in our powerlessness. It doesn't become marginal when we're marginalised. It doesn't depend on our success for its success. It will do its work, God's work, in our weakness, irrelevancy, in our dismissal from consideration of the powerful where we make it known clearly for it is the word of God. And the salvation it brings is good, so good. That's why it's worth enduring all things to make it known and to further encourage perseverance in being unashamed of the gospel. Paul brings home the goodness of the gospel by reminding Timothy and us of what the gospel promises in this pithy summary. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we died with him, 
we will also live with him. Paul's recalling the beginning of the Christian life when we first believed the gospel. A beginning baptism is a picture of. Speaking of that beginning, Paul says in Romans 6, are you unaware that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Firstly, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. To become a believer is to die with Christ. It's to die to that old way of life where we were the bosses of our own life defying God. It's to die to the power and rule of sin in our lives. And the gospel that calls us to that death of repentance, saying, I'm not the boss, the Lord Jesus is the boss. The death of saying no to ourselves and yes to Jesus, our Lord, promises life. If we died with him, we will also live with him, life in fellowship with the Lord Jesus, life free from the power of sin now so that we can walk in newness of life, life that will continue to share, continue as we share in the resurrection life of Christ. The gospel promises life to all who repent and believe and the gospel promises to those who persevere a share in Christ's reign. If we endure, we will also reign. With him. This is the promise Jesus made to his followers that those who endure to the end will be saved. It is certain. And that salvation is pictured, so Revelation 3, as sharing in Jesus' reign. And so the humiliation and shame Paul endured will be exchanged for glory. The persecution believers endure at the hands of human judges will be exchanged for sitting ourselves on the throne of judgment. The gospel promises this glory for all who endure, faithful to Christ, faithful to the task he has given us of making disciples. Oh, and yes, the gospel also reminds us, warns us, that this life and glory is found only in Christ. And that to abandon Christ is to be denied by Christ. (coughs) Now this is a reminder that what is at stake in enduring faithfully is not just the salvation of others as we make the gospel known, but our own. And these promises are certain because they are the promises of the faithful God. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Here is encouragement in our weakness and when we are dealing with weak brothers and sisters. To be faithless here is contrasted with the faithfulness of God. And so it's not apostasy that Paul is talking about here in this line of falling away, of denying Christ. That was the line before. To be faithless is here to fail in faithfulness. It's to be like Peter at the crucifixion, boasting of his faithfulness to Jesus and then running away, failing in his commitment to him, a commitment that Peter knew our Lord Jesus deserved. You might have your own examples of being faithless, where that 
faithlessness is not just prompted as Peter's was by a fear of violence, but perhaps by a fear of being different. When you were drawn in by friends to doing things which Jesus forbids, like, say, getting drunk or whatever, or a faithlessness prompted by fear of loss, when, say, for the sake of personal ambition for advancement at work, you compromised ethically, or faithlessness prompted by the fear of loneliness, when for sexual satisfaction you decided to move in with your girlfriend or boyfriend. You might have experienced that faithlessness yourself. And then by God's grace, like Peter, you feel the grief of that, a coldness, a distance in your relationship with the Lord. It cuts you to the heart because you know you have betrayed your Lord. Well, here we learn that because God is who he is, that failure need not be final. He will be faithful to himself. He will keep on being the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who forgives as he forgave the adulterous David. And Jesus will keep on being the saviour. He came to be the saviour of sinners, frail and weak sinners. In fact, God in his faithfulness makes a promise to those who believe in the Lord Jesus that he will forgive their sin. A promise we hear Sunday by Sunday. Just as he promises in 1 Corinthians 10 to provide a way of escape so that we need not sin. You see, believing the gospel brings us to put our hope not in ourselves and our own strength, but in God himself to be himself. The God who will always be whom he has declared himself to be. He will never deny himself and that is such a great encouragement and a source of everlasting praise. Encouragement to persevere when we know our own weakness and frailty. He remains faithful. Our failure need not be final. There is forgiveness. You know, that might be the failure you may be conscious of now. Well, here, he'll be faithful to his promise to forgive sinners. You can turn back for mercy and restoration just as Peter was restored. Oh, and there's also encouragement here when ministering to others in their failure that, as we'll see next week, is part of the ministry that Timothy is called to. Timothy is to seek the repentance even of those who oppose him, who've believed lies. And so here in the promise of the gospel is the encouragement that those he gently persuades and teaches can find their way back, can repent of their error and find forgiveness and restoration. And he needs to know that, doesn't he? We need to know that to persevere. You see, that's part of the ministry we all have to each other, isn't it? To gently teach each other the truth, to call each other back from faithlessness. And here is the encouragement that those difficult conversations are worth it. For God will be true to himself and forgive the repentant. Why persevere unashamed of the gospel? Even when, as Paul tells us, it will, that perseverance will bring suffering. The hardship, the good soldier, 
the dedicated athlete, the hard-working farmer, endures. Why persevere? Well, it's because of the gospel itself, its content, the Lord Jesus, risen and reigning, the hope of the ages, its power, the unbound word of God, and its promise to all who believe it, life, glory and mercy. There is no better word to believe, no better word to share. And so as we close, let me ask you, do you know the goodness and the power of the gospel for yourself? It would be a tragedy, wouldn't it, to sit through a talk like this and have no idea what I've been talking about. So do you rejoice to remember that the Lord Jesus is risen from the dead, your living Saviour? Have you heard him calling you to himself through the gospel? Dying to yourself, do you live with him now and look forward to living with him forever? When you have failed, do you know his faithfulness, the glory of his never denying himself and found that he, the one who came to save sinners, gracious and merciful, He, not your goodness, not your success or faithfulness, he is your hope. Do you know the goodness and the power of the gospel for yourself? And do you keep its goodness and power always before you? I've asked you before in the talk, but are you determined to deliberately structure your life to every day remember Jesus? Because that is your life and your endurance. And will you? Because you know that the gospel is the word of God, be confident whatever your circumstances to share it. Will you remember that it's not your arguments, not your exemplary life, not your having your life altogether, not your personal impressiveness that saves? It's God who saves through his word. And so even when you don't have the answers, even when your life is inconsistent, even when you're not impressive, you can share it and it will do God's work in the lives of his people. It will bring them to salvation, to life, and bring them to eternal glory, to the praise of our great God. And won't that be good? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy that you would so work in our lives that we would always remember Jesus Christ, not as a dead figure of history, but as our living, reigning Lord. We pray in your mercy you will grant us to die each day to sin, to our selfishness, so that we live with him. Please work in our lives so that we endure and endure making the gospel known so that we come to reign with him. And almighty God, let us so know the power of the goodness of your gospel in our own lives that we are confident to make that gospel known to all, whatever our circumstances, knowing that it is your powerful through which you will save your people 
to the glory of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And in his name we ask. Amen.